you know, we, we live in a, a day and age where most people's goals are quite counter to the biblical goals that God lays out for us. Uh, you know, when we talk about, and today we're looking at the issues of employers and employee relationships and what that looks like according to the Word of God. Uh, if you think about what your goals are as an employee, what would you say they are? What kind of things would you think of? For most people in our society, it comes down to things like, well, I'd like to work less hours. I'd like to have more pay, you know. I want more benefits. I want uh, just everything to be really towards me. If you're an employer and you employ people and you think about your goals for the employees, a lot of times if you're not careful, you can have basically the same perspective. I want the most productivity I can get out of people with less uh, pay perhaps so that I can have prior, higher profits and I want greater control over management policies and practices and things like that. And it seems to me that when we come to the issue of employers and employees, we have uh, positions that are diametrically opposed to one another, don't we? It is a great opportunity for conflict. And the reason for this is I think very, very simple if you understand depravity and that is that <clears throat> greed and leisure and comfort and those kind of things rule our lives. I mean, you see this, in the, like you see somebody that wins the lottery or they talk about winning the lottery and they say, well, what are you going to do now that you've won the lottery? And what's the first thing most of the times they say? I'm going to quit my what? Job, right? I don't want to work anymore. The only reason I'm working is so that I can have the money to do the things I want to do, Right? Most people don't want to work. It gets in the way of fun. And, it, and it's sad to say, but I believe the American work ethic has, to a large extent, died. Uh, both employers and employees want uh, more in their pockets, so they want lower taxes, and uh, they want more benefits, so they want more government or employment uh, protection, subsidies, things like that for the employee. They, they want the welfare, the workman's comp, disability uh, protections from governmental agencies, things like that for the employer. He, he wants grants and tax abatements and research funding and all those kind of things. Everybody wants more for less. The, the reality is, though, it cannot work that way just from a mere fiscal uh, policy, right? It, it just doesn't work that way because uh, if there are increased costs, prices of goods must go up, uh, pay has to rise, different things like that, taxes go up. Uh, it's just a, it's a never-ending cycle that just is vicious and turns over and over again. As income increases for most people, they don't uh, live on their basic needs. They, their cost of living goes up. They buy nicer stuff, have to have more toys and things like that. And as more toys are bought, uh, even more to toys are desired. And the reason goes back again to the heart of man, which is deceitfully wicked, right? No one can understand it. And, and we're, we're driven, if we're not careful, by, at least the natural man is, by greed. And greed by nature and greed by definition is insatiable. It cannot be satisfied. Our society, it can be argued, is one of the greediest in history. Everybody wants more for less. And our greed has caused many to lay aside moral standards in case, in the, for the um, desire really to, to get more. You are willing to cut corners and do things that are illegal. Uh, we've set morality out, the, out to the side in order to make the most. We see this as a, in our government. You don't remember that. It wasn't that long ago. Uh, you remember when Bill Clinton was going through his impeachment process for his... Uh, issue with Monica Lewinsky, 
Most Americans, when asked, thought that was wrong, but when you looked at his approval ratings, they were very, very high because, why? The economy was good. So we're happy to put up with whatever as long as it's lining our pockets. This is not a political speech, by the way. We're just talking about the nature of man's heart. It is a downward spiral of greed, and it shows up in most of our relationships, if not all of our relationships, but perhaps one of the ones that shows up most clearly is in the relationship of those who work and those who are worked for. And so the Bible takes this to task. Colossians 3, uh, verse, we're at verse 22, and we're going through uh, chapter 4, verse 1, talks about this because it's important. Most people spend a large chunk of their life at work, right? I mean, if you work an eight-hour day, and most people don't work an eight-hour day, and when you throw your commute in and different things like that, you're using at least a third of your day, if not more, and that's just including sleeping time, right? No, this is an important issue, and if we as believers want to live for Christ, as we, as we who have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ want to honor him and, and, and put that transformed life out there so that God can use it to impact other people, one of the great areas that we should uh, pay attention to is this issue of the workplace. And in Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 through ch- chapter 4, verse 1, we see God's design for interaction between the employee and the employer. It's a design that, that helps us to honor God with our actions. It, it helps us to work in a way that is fulfilling as we uh, try to make a living, to provide for our families, and to be of service to others. So I hope you have your Bibles open to Colossians 3. Follow along as I, I read this passage to you. Colossians 3, beginning in verse 22. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, Not with external service, as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, grant To your slaves, justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Now you'll notice here that it didn't say employers and employees, okay? It said what? Slaves and masters. So right off the bat there, you might be tempted, if you're just reading through the book Colossians, to throw that out. You know, say, well, we're not really in the slavery thing anymore. And we don't have people who own us and things like that. But you need to understand the context of our passage here. Now before Paul's time, slaves were... were, uh, often not even considered as people under the law. Uh, They could be sold, they could be exchanged, they could be given away, they could be seized to pay a debt. They had no legal rights for marriage. Uh, Masters on on the opposite side had unlimited power to punish. I read one Roman writer who was telling of a wealthy woman who had a slave and she had her slave crucified. And she had her slave crucified, and so they pressed her on, you know, why did you do this? And she didn't have an answer, and it didn't really matter that she didn't have an answer. She just said, I just did it to see what it was like for my own pleasure. That's really the way a slave was in, in the time leading up to when Paul's writing here. Now, by the time you get to Paul's time, slavery was changing, okay? Uh, mostly because what masters began to realize is that a productive slave or a happy slave is a productive slave. So it's still very selfish, still very greed-centered, you understand, right? 
but they started to, to give them rights. And so they had things by the time Paul writes like fair trials, they could own property, uh, they could marry, do things like that. In fact, uh, in Paul's time in Rome, often the people who would be described as slaves, and there were about 60 million of them, about half the population was slaves. Uh, some of those guys were actually better off than people who weren't slaves as far as a quality of life. Uh, they had internships. I mean, they were professionals. Doctors were slaves. Teachers could be slaves, things like that. So as Paul's writing here, really what he's describing, I think, is more like what our situation is today. There is a sense where we're kind of slaves to whoever we work for. You understand that, right? I mean, we may not have to live in a certain place, and they can't tell us who to marry and things like that for the most part, right? But there is an idea where we're working, we're basically selling a chunk of our life to somebody for an income back so that we can purchase the things that might have been provided in a slavery sense, okay? So you are, I mean, if you don't think you're a slave for a little bit, I want you to go out this afternoon and call your boss and quit your job, all right? Because to a certain extent you are, right? I mean, because if you quit your job, what's going to happen? You're not going to have your income. You're not going to have your house. You're not going to be able to put food on the table unless you get another job for another person. So you are a slave to your debts of your home and your cars and all these kind of things in a, in a very, very real sense. We don't like to think of it that way. And slavery tends to be, in our, our minds, kind of pushed back to Civil War times and that kind of slavery. But what's being described here in the New Testament, as Paul writes, is really more of a relationship like what we know today although a little bit more extreme than that, certainly. Now, what Paul is not doing here is he says slaves and he says masters. He's not advocating slavery. I hope you understand that. He's just dealing with society as it is. By the way, the New Testament never attacks the institution of slavery directly. Uh, The interest of the New Testament writers was, was not social activism. It was really about gospel presentation. Because if a life has changed, if a heart has changed, that changes a society. Too often we get that backwards, right? We don't live accordance with the new... So we go out and let me ask you a question. Abortion, is it right or wrong? Go ahead, say it out loud. It's wrong, right? That's called murder in the Bible, right? Okay, now now there are groups of people who... I I remember going to a a conference at Grace Community one time, and I'm walking with my little ones up to the church and have them in each side of me holding their hands with my wife and and there's a four foot by eight foot piece of plywood with a picture of an aborted fetus on, fetus, fetus on it, okay? Now, these guys were screaming at us as we went in because MacArthur didn't say something or said something or who knows what. He certainly isn't in favor of abortion, but whatever he did wasn't enough for these guys, so they were going to pick at the church. You see the same people outside abortion clinics. They're screaming at the 14-year-old girl walking in. Instead of coming alongside these people, showing them the love of Christ, bringing the gospel to them so they're able to make better decisions and work through the hard decisions they've made. See, see what the power of the word of God is, is that it is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God to salvation, which takes lives and changes them. And as lives are changed, a society is changed, just like we're looking at Colossians. As you individually are changed, you are changing your home, right? Those closest to you. And you're changing the workplace, those closest, next closest to you. You follow what I'm saying? And so the the main interest is the gospel impacting lives and therefore having an impact on the people around those folks. While the New Testament never attacks slavery, note that 
uh, Christianity sowed the seeds which led to its destruction as well. Not by active, activism, but by, by changed hearts. There are many people who are more than happy to be political in their views and not practical in their living out their, their Christianity. And that's where we need to put our emphasis, folks. Now, while, while these slaves in Paul's day were not employees in the strictest sense, the principles still apply, I think, to the work situation for us today. So let's consider the God-ordained responsibilities of employees and employers so that we can honor God as we interact in these capacities. Okay, number one, and you see this on your outline. First, let's look at the responsibilities of an employee. The first responsibility that you see of an employee is sincere obedience. Sincere obedience. Look at verse 22. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Now, notice that he says there, obey in how many things? What does it say? All things, right? That, that means if it's an enjoyable duty, do it. If it's distasteful, go ahead and do it. It doesn't matter. Obey your earthly masters. Now, again, the caveat, as we saw with husbands, wives, all that kind of stuff, children, is Acts 5.29. We obey God rather than men. We don't do things that are counter to the word of God. So if your employer, for example, asked you to do something that was illegal, would you do that as a Christian? Of course not, right? Because we have with Romans 13, we're to uh, submit to those in authority over us, and that includes our government that is ordained by God, okay? So, we're, but we are to obey in all things. If it's just a, a gray area, if it's something that's not in counter to God's word, or the law of the land, the calling is to obey your masters in all things. Now, what you'll notice here is this obedience is not a grit your teeth kind of obedience, right? Or you're just kind of like, I'm just... I'm going to do it and get through this thing. And it's not a, a man-pleaser obedience either, where I'm going to do it to, to get them off my back. It's a sincere obedience. Look what it says. Not with external service as those who merely please men. The world is full of men-pleasers. The world is full of yes men looking for advancement. Whether they mean it or not, they'll just rubber stamp anything. But our service isn't to be like that. Our service is to be from the heart, sincere, not merely external. By the way, this external service here is an interesting word. It's ophthalmodulia. Uh, that's ophthalmo, it's I, the Greek word for I, plus doulos, you've heard that's a slave word. It's a, the Greek word for service, not just I service. And when I, when I see that, I, I always think of this because this is the kind of guy who works only when the boss is looking, you know what I mean? When I, when I think of this, I think of junior high. Is this a junior high? This is junior high, isn't it? Oh. I think of junior high gym class. We used to have together in the, a lot of times in a room somewhat like this and do, back then, do they just still do calisthenics? Does anybody require anybody to do anything physical anymore? Anyway, we did this and one of the things that we did was push-up and I remember this so plainly because it always went like this. Everybody's doing their push-ups, right? And the coach in his bike shorts is sitting there with his whistle and he's counting them off and when he turns towards the other side of the class, this side always did the same thing. It was like push, put one, two, and they stopped. And then when he turns back around, they start doing them again. The other side stops. That, my friends, is eye service. 
That is, I'm doing what he says, not from the heart, not from sincerity or anything because I'm supposed to uh, submit to the authorities over me, but I'm doing it because he's watching. And that's the only reason. Our service to our employers is, is to not be like that gym class, okay? But that's what it says here. Look at verse 22. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service, that's the eye service word, as those who merely please men, but, and by the way, you can say but in several different ways in, in Greek. This one here is a lot, it's the strong adversative. It's the one that says, but, and when you see the word but in scriptures, it's like a hinge on a door, okay? You've seen one side and that's swinging the other way. Don't do it like this, but swing. Here's the opposite. Here's what you're supposed to be doing. What does he say? But with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Do it right. Don't be, have a double standard. Do it because the Lord uh, instructed you to do so and you answer to him. Fearing the Lord, respecting and awe of the Lord. Have you thought about that in your workplace? I mean, if we were to take a poll and ask you to raise your hands, if you have a, a boss that's incompetent or not very good at what he does or not fair or pick your poison, most people would raise their hand and say, yeah, my bo- I could do a better job than my boss. A lot of people would, right? There's a lack of respect there, right? Uh, and you may be able to. There's no, no, no doubt that that could be the case. But what, what this is talking about here is you're not looking at that earthly boss as your boss. You're looking at a, a greater master. You're looking at the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're serving that earthly master as if he sta- because he stands in the place of authority granted by your heavenly master. You tracking with me on this? This is a whole different way of looking at it because instead of looking at that person and kind of critiquing and doing all that kind of stuff, now you look and say, you know what? God has placed him here. Just like Paul looked at Nero and said, you know, submit to authorities over you in, in, in the government. Nero was the guy there. He was not worthy of respect. He was not doing the right thing. But I'll tell you what, he was placed there by God, just like every other leader in history for whatever purpose God has. And that's his, his decision, not ours, right? And so he said, I'm going to submit to him as long as he's not asking me to do something counter to what God tells me to do. And I'm going to honor him and revere him that way. That's the idea here because we're going to do it with sincerity of heart because we can, and we can do that sincerely because we look past that earthly master to our heavenly master and serve him from a, a sincere heart. So we should do our work as employees with sincere obedience. The second responsibility of an employee is wholehearted service. We see that in verses 23 through 25. Look at verse 23. And this is really the nutshell, isn't it? Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. And there it is again, right? Whatever you do, once again, it could be something that's glamorous. It could be something that's mundane. It doesn't really matter. Whatever it is, do it as unto the Lord. Do it for the Lord. And you, you might be tempted here to say, well, pastor, you know, I'm just a, and fill in the blank. I'm, I've got some menial position, something that... Uh, isn't super important or great. How am I going to do that to the Lord? This doesn't really fit in God's equation anywhere, right? I knew a guy who his whole job was this. He would take a strip of stainless steel, half inch wide by different lengths. He would take a clip, he would slide it on there, he would bend it over, he would crimp it on there, and then he would do another one. That was his life, 8, 10, 12 hours a day. Over and over and over. Let me tell you what, if you're that guy, do that unto the Lord. 
You know what? Do it under the Lord. Can you, can you see how when you do your job well, that that, that is the, the, the thing that shows that you're working for the Lord? Do you do it to the best of your ability for his glory? And it doesn't matter if it's a great task in the world's eyes or a menial task. If it's washing a floor, scrubbing a toilet, do it for the Lord. I think of medical missionaries, right? A medical missionary here in the States could make pretty good money probably, right? If they came here and just had a medical job. And we're thankful, guys, everybody doesn't go and be a medical missionary so we would have some medical help here, right? But these guys go over there and some of the stuff they're doing in these, these huts and things like that are, are, are just, you know, cleaning sores and they're, they're coming alongside people who are, are ill for, for the cause of Christ. And the guys who do it here as a vocation can do the same thing. And the nurses and all these who come alongside, you, you can come alongside, you can show the love and care of Christ by doing your job well, being patient and helpful and caring for others. Whatever it is, though, do it, it says, look at it, heartily, literally what that says in the Greek is, do it from the soul. So the idea here is not just simply resignation. Okay, Pastor David preached on this passage, now I got to go work unto the Lord. And so I'm dealing with my crummy boss or whatever, and I'm going, well, I'm doing it unto the Lord and grit my teeth, right? No, it's not that idea. Got to do it for the Lord. It's so much different than that. It's, it's, it's a joyful thing. It's an act of worship. Think about this. Have you ever thought of your job as worship? This is, you're spending at least a third of your life working. Can you give glory to God in that by doing it to the best of your ability as unto the Lord? Do it heartily, he says, for the Lord rather than for men. And there you have it in a nutshell again, Right? It's past the man thing, and it's to the God thing. It's reminiscent of back in verse 17 where he said, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord. And work is a spiritual act of worship. That doesn't guarantee as you do it as to the Lord that it's all, everything's going to be peachy. You understand that, right? And it doesn't mean that you should be a workaholic. <laughs> well, kids, it's just my mission. I'm going to work for another 14 hours today. Right? But this is a call that a Christian, it's a call for us to be the best workers. I really believe this, okay? I'm not saying the most skilled. Skill levels are, are very different from person to person. But I'm saying with what we've been given, we do it to the best of our ability because it is a spiritual act of worship as unto the Lord. The sad truth, though, is many Christian workers just like their, their uh, lost counterparts, are, are lazy, right? They, they take advantage of situations, especially if there's a Christian boss. Sometimes Christian workers will try to take advantage of their Christian boss or vice versa. But our job is to do our best work. If you're a C student and you get a C, you did a, your best work, Right? If you're an A student, you get to see you didn't do it right. You know what I'm saying? And it's like that in our jobs as well. We do it to the best of our abilities. I remember when I was going to seminary, I worked for a company called Warehouser. Um, I got to know the job because a deacon in our church uh, brought it up to me. But the guy who I actually worked for was an agnostic guy. 
And he was the one who hired me, and he was my direct boss. And so I, I, I wanted to, regardless of which one it was, try to do my job as, as well as possible, right, and have a good testimony, and it would hopefully be a, a good uh, living illustration of the fact that, you know, Christians care about doing the right thing and doing it with integrity and all that kind of stuff. And one of the greatest joys of my life was when, after a little bit of time there, this guy who was agnostic was started to go, you know what? Why don't we hire more of these seminary guys? Why don't we hire some more Christians in here? Because these guys really work well. And the guy that replaced me when I left there was a guy from seminary. And that's not because of me. That's because of God. It's because we took the, the call of Scripture carefully to heart and said, I want to use this as a testimony. I want to use this as an act of worship in my life. And I, I know I failed in that, I'm sure, many, many times. But by God's grace, at least he, he kind of saw the, the, the better part of it in the end. And, and so the question that you want to be thinking of right now is when you work, when you go to your job, whatever it is, if it's in and out drive through or you're the chief executive of, of, I mean, you still have a boss. You understand that, right? There's always a board, All right? Whoever, whatever your position is, do you work as if God is your boss, literally. That'll change the way you get up, change the way you go, change the way you use your time. I mean, think about it. Would, would you cheat or break laws in your business if you thought of God as your boss? Would you uh, waste company time if you thought of God as your boss? Would you misuse company resources if you thought of God as your boss? I mean, how would your work ethic change in your situation as you think of God as your heavenly master, even in your work? Because Colossians 3.23 says, we are to work as unto him. Now, now look here in verses 24 and 25. It tells us a couple of reasons why we are to fear him. That is, reverence him, respect him, have awe of him. There's two of them. Verse 24 tells us, because God rewards, look at it, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Now, this would be big time news to a slave, I'll be honest with you, because slaves didn't get a reward as a rule. And what, what the focus shift here is, and he's talking, again, he's using the word slave, okay? The focus shift is, I'm not doing it just for the feedback I'm getting right now. I'm not doing it for the, just the paycheck or the boss's approval or the productivity or anything like that. I'm doing it because I'm working unto the Lord and I will be rewarded by him someday. You see the difference? That's your payday, folks. Your payday is not Friday or the 15th or the 30th or something like that. Your payday is when we go to heaven and God says, well done, good and faithful service. You stood for me in your home. You stood for me in your workplace and in your neighborhood. And you were a great, uh, you, were, you, were, you were faithful in the way that you lived in front of a watching world so that I could use your life to impact this generation with the gospel. That's a lot better than earthly pay, by the way. Because it does not fade and it is not defiled. It does not rot away. Thieves can't break in and steal, right? Where's your paycheck from last June? <laughs> well, some of you may have it in the bank still. The majority of you probably don't. You paid a car, you ate it. You 
God rewards. And this is, I know for Christians, sometimes this is hard for us because we feel our greed kick in on the reward thing, right? Is it right to want to do something for reward? Isn't that just my depraved greed again? Can I just take your, put your mind at ease just for a second? It is absolutely right to do it for the reward. If it's that kind of reward from God. That's why he sets it out there. Is God unjust that he would put a reward in front of you and then say, oh, you shouldn't have wanted that reward? (laughs) What kind of God would that be, right? No, no. There are rewards laid up for you in heaven, so we set our mind on the things above and we put our treasures in heaven, and that is the, the emphasis of our life, folks. So when you're looking at your life here and your employment situation, it's not merely making the bills and all that kind of stuff, but it's beyond that. I'm looking for a way to increase treasure in heaven by being faithful and working unto the Lord so that he might use me for his glory. Okay, so we fear him. We put him in reverence and awe and respect for one reason, because he rewards. Second reason, you see it in verse 25, because God judges, all right? Look at verse 25. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done and that without partiality. If you do wrong, God warns you here that you will receive the consequences of the wrong. And he says, without partiality, that means without favoritism, because I hope you understand this about God, is he doesn't play favorites. He's very, very fair. We'll talk about favoritism in a little bit, partiality in a little bit. Now, again, if you understand you get a reward and you understand there's a judge, does that change the way you work just a little bit? It will, won't it? Verse 24 reminds us it's the Lord Jesus Christ whom you serve. That's, that's an amazing concept. I mean, do you think like that in your job? It's a hard one to get past that earthly boss and employment structure and start to see Lord Jesus Christ. But to the extent that you can do that, is the extent you'll honor God in your workplace. And my question is, do, you think, do I think like that? Do you think like that? You see, according to pollsters, Christians, for the most part, don't work any better, don't work any more honestly or with more integrity than a non-Christian. They polled Christians in a study called The Day America Told the Truth, and one in four Christians said they gave the best effort on the job. One in four. One in ten said they were satisfied with their job. Now, we can listen to those statistics and we can identify, can't we? We want more. We, we don't necessarily like everything going on. And it, but if we're, not, if we're not careful, we become like that and we don't give our best effort and we look for something more than what the Lord has given us right now and we're not content with what he's given us. Christian, we should work better than others. Our work, and you see this on your outline, should be energetic. Second Thessalonians 3.10 says, if a man will not work, neither let him eat. We need to use our God-given energy for work. And working well. Again, not a call to being a workaholic, not a call to this being the only thing, but as you do it, do it well. It should also be, secondly, enthusiastically. Verse 23 said, We do it hardly. I mean, do your coworkers see enthusiasm in your work, or are you a complainer, a time killer, or are you just stretching out your project, you know, kind of a, a government work kind of thing? I remember a guy I worked with when I first got out of AM who A&M lost this weekend. Anyway, uh, when I first got out of A&M, there was a guy, his name was Tim, and I, we both got hired out of A&M at the same time. We both got put in the same office in, in, for this company in New Orleans, and we're sitting there working together, and 
man, I was excited and I was working hard and all that. I was pretty crummy at it, but I was learning. And, and so I was working and everything. And I remember Tim and he would say, he would come to me and say, why are you working so hard on that? He goes, you know, if we work on this, we could just stretch this out and make it last. And I just thought to myself, well, that, and I wasn't, I, I, won't, I won't submit to you that I was doing that to the Lord's glory at the time, all right? That really wasn't where I was coming from. I was trying to get up the ladder. But, uh, but I'll be honest with you, that was distasteful to me. As, as from a secular mindset, that was distasteful. So the people around you, when they see you trying to do your job well and all that, it, it is a part of your testimony of who you are in Christ Jesus. should be enthusiastic. Thirdly, it should be earnest, not as men pleasers, but sincere. Uh, can you work well without being pushed, without being prodded, without being watched? Will you do your job? And then finally, the fourth one is, and this is big, it's, is your work excellent? Our work needs to represent Christ since it's him who we serve. Let us offer up nothing but excellence to him to the best of our abilities. Do you do your best as a spiritual sacrifice, a spiritual act of worship to God? That's the type of work we who are employees should be doing because of the work of the Lord in our life. And it strengthens our witness, folks. It shows evidence of the transformation that Christ does. And it gives your talk of Christ when you share with people more credibility. All right? That's employees. Now let's move on to employers. The passage doesn't just stop with the slaves, but moves on to the masters, right? Chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. The word grant there means that you have it to give. In your hands, you have the ability to treat people right and to treat them fairly. It's your God-given power. It's your God-given responsibility to furnish, to present, to grant fairness and justice to your employees, to your slaves. You're to provide, the first one there is justice, right? You're to provide just leadership as an employer. Literally, justice is right or correct. In other words, you're to do what's right, okay? You're to lead with integrity. Do not ask your employees to do anything that's wrong or to do anything that's unethical. Do justice. Do the right thing. You're also to provide fair leadership. You see that, right? Justice and fairness. Fairness, literally, there is equality. Okay, so the idea here is that you don't play favorites. You know, everybody, it's just like with your kids, right? There are some kids you like more than other kids because you identify. You don't love them more, but you just kind of enjoy the same things, you know? And as an employer, sometimes that can be the case with your employees, right? You have the same interests. They all like to talk about college football or they like to play tennis or whatever it is that you're into, right? And so if you're not careful, you can tend to appreciate them more, promote them more, treat them better. But again... The call here is for fairness, right? Those are external things that have nothing to do with their ability to do their job, and they shouldn't get a benefit from it. As God does not play favorites, we should not play favorites. It's one of the characteristics, attributes of God is that he judges, as we saw in verse 25, without partiality. Reminds me of a letter of recommendation I read about. A Chicago Bank once asked for a letter of resignation on a young man from Boston that they were talking about hiring. 
So they sent off to the company, the Boston Investment House, and they just couldn't say enough about the guy. They said his father was a Cabot. His mother was a Lowell. Further back, he was a happy blend of salt and stalls and Peabody's. I think he even had a little Thurston Howe III in him. Several days later, the, the Chicago bank wrote back, hey, we're not looking to, to breed him. We're looking to know if he's going to be a good employee. You see the difference? I mean, they were all thrilled with his, his bloodline and who he could connect them to and all that kind of stuff. And what they were asking about is, what is he as an employee? So we, we are to, to look past our interest and things like that and treat people without partiality. By the way, this idea of being without partiality is a, a phrase that is unique in the time period that this is written to Christian writers and Christian writers alone. This was not something that was part of the, the cultural context in any way, shape, or form. It, it goes back to Hebrew thought. and the Hebrew, it, the idea was nasa panim, and it, and it means nasa to lift up, panim, a face. Okay, And then when it got to the Greek, they just basically took those words and, and translated them directly to receive the face again. And so it became prosopalampsis, uh, and that means to receive a face again. And the idea was this, okay? Back in those days, of course, a king was sitting on his throne, and you were going to see the king. And what would happen is you would come looking for that audience with the king. They would walk you in. You would keep your face down in humility because you're before the king. And then if he was going to receive your request or whatever it was, he would reach over with his scepter, and he would put it on your chin, and he would lift your face up, raise it. That means I'm going to listen to you, and I'm going to receive you and give you favor. That's the whole concept here. Who do we receive? Who do we show favoritism to? And that's the process that, that when you're talking about who God is and his attributes, you understand that God does not play favorites. And therefore, as those who have been bought by the blood of his son, who have been redeemed, who have been recast into his image, right, through, through recreation, we should not people be people who show favoritism, who receive only certain people's face. Paul here reminds the employer why he should be just and fair. Look at it. He says, because he knows that he too has a master in heaven. And that leads you to the third responsibility of an employer. You have just leadership, fair leadership, and then thirdly, it's submissive leadership. Employers answer to a master as well, and that is God, is, God in heaven. They are not, we are not, the ultimate masters. I'll tell you what, the real, realization of this, if you are an employer, will transform the way you treat people and do your business. You are a steward. You have been given authority by God in a situation and you're to carry it out in accordance with his design, his desires, his character. And what I hope you've seen so far as a, either an employee or an employer or both, that you have responsibilities that impact the world. That's why the Holy Spirit of God takes this time to put these verses into the text because we need to hear it. And you'll remember that the whole big picture here is that God's gospel, a relationship with the all-sufficient Christ, is life-changing, right? 
We are transformed, and as we individually are transformed, and that's why we spent the time we have in Colossians 3, 5 through 4, 1, as we are transformed, our relationships become transforming. So we are better children, better husbands, better fathers, better wives, better husbands, better workers, better employers. All these things should be impacted by our Christianity. Our Christianity is not simply a theology that is separate from everything. We don't compartmentalize our lives and say, well, that's my church life. That's my work life. That's my family life. That is not the way it works, folks. The gospel transforms and goes down to every part of who we are. And because of the character of God, these relationships get changed. And I cannot tell you how many times I have seen in the workplace, my own experience, I have seen people who have Bible verses on their screensavers and all this kind of stuff, and they're cheating, and they're lying, and they're gossiping, and they're doing all this kind of stuff that, that dishonors the name of Christ, and that watching world out there who does not know anything about the Bible looks at them and says, well, I don't know what that is with the verse on the screen, but I watch them, and I don't want any part of it. Right? I would rather you not put a fish on your car if you're going to drive like a maniac. Right? Take your t-shirt with a Bible verse and put it in the closet unless you want to live like, t- like that t-shirt Bible verse says. Right? Now, hey, we're not perfect. We understand that. We fail. That's not what I'm talking about. I hope you understand that. But can I tell you this? When you and I fail, and spoiler alert, we're gonna, Right? When you and I fail, what a fantastic opportunity to show some more about the transformation. When you lose your temper at work, when you've wronged somebody, how glorifying to God is it if you were to go back then and explain to them, seek their forgiveness, Explain to them why what you did was counter to what God's word says and how you were bought with a price. You are not your own anymore. And I want you to forgive me. You know, Christians are walking around. All of us, we're trying to look perfect, I'm afraid, sometimes. And so when we do something wrong, we don't talk about it and we pretend like it never happened. There's vulnerability, isn't there? and admitting that you were wrong to an employee, to an employer. But can I just submit to you that we're not sitting here trying to figure out how do we get to the top the fastest, or how do we make the most money, or how do we have the most toys. What we're concerned about is does my life bear witness to the incredibly wonderful God that I serve who saved my life? And you know what? You can play the game for the ladder, and maybe you will make it up. Maybe you will be the guy, but I will fi- what you'll find there will not be satisfying to you either. But as you serve God and even do things that may seem like they're counterintuitive to your job progression, if you do it to the honor, glory of God, if he wants you to be whatever he wants you to be, he'll get you there. You understand? A good friend of mine was working for a Christian company. Well, the company wasn't Christian, but his employers were. We all went to the same church. He was so thrilled to be working in a Christian environment. 
And he worked hard. He worked as unto the Lord. One day they come to him and they needed a new furnace. Uh, it was a clothing uniform company. And they needed some new equipment that, you know, they had to replace some stuff. Well, anyway, part of the deal was if he cut some corners, he did some stuff that was illegal against the law, they could have upgraded this stuff and it would have made his job a lot easier. And in fact, his employers, the owners of the company were telling him he needs to do that. He and I talked about it. We prayed about it. The bottom line, it was really not a lot to think about because it was wrong. It was illegal, things like that. And he went back and he, he told them why he couldn't. Christian bosses. They couldn't comprehend that because they would successfully compartmentalize their lives. But they weren't going to go through with it either because they knew they could lose their company if they did it and not the employee. In the end, it was, a, it was a great testimony. And much later, down the road, not exactly then, not even close to then, they came to him and said, we want to thank you for that. Once they realized what was right in the eyes of the Lord. That's nice when you get to hear that. But again, we're not doing it to hear it. That's man-pleasing, Right? We're not doing it just so we can see everything perfect in the end and all play out just right. No. There are things that you will do in this life that you will not see a benefit to because it was right this side of heaven. The, the reality is, as Christians, we do what is right regardless of whether we receive a benefit in this life or not. Amen? So let's, let's go out and let's be people who work as unto the Lord. Let's hold our work in the proper balance. Work is not simply a, it's not like just a part of the curse. I mean, man was working before that. Yeah, it's a lot harder and we don't want to do it as much since the curse probably. But the reality is, this is something that God has ordained. He worked, right? So it's not wrong. He worked for six days and they rested on the seventh. You remember that, right? So it's not wrong. Let's do it as unto the Lord for his glory so that our witness will ring true in the ears of those people in the next cubicle or in the stall next to us or the business across the street when we try to share the gospel with them, which is what we're doing as ambassadors of Christ, right? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together. And Lord, we come to this passage, and uh, it's an area of our life that is every one of us deals with in some way, shape, or form. And Lord, we, we often fail in these areas as well, and we understand that. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your forgiveness as we fail. Lord, we seek to honor you better as workers and employers. Lord, may your gospel seep down and permeate every, every part of our life so that we can reflect who you are to a lost and dying world that needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.